I don't know about you, but that last song that we sang, It Is Well With My Soul, it's one of my favorites. And uh, it's incredibly applicable for what we're going to be talking about because the only reason that Horatio Spafford, the guy who wrote that song, could say, It Is Well With My Soul, is because he had assurance of his eternal life, right? He had assurance. He knew where he was going. Evidence of living in the light. That's what we're talking about. So the whole point of 1 John, right, is in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The whole point is that we would know that we have eternal life. The point is to give assurance of salvation to those who have been saved by pointing us to the evidence of salvation rather than the means of salvation. You see, John wants to give assurance to those of us who have heard and believed the gospel that such a simple process of hearing and believing the gospel actually secures the most powerful thing in the universe. It's crazy, right? Sometimes we may be tempted to think that salvation is too good to be true. So, show of hands, who here has read, is reading, or has even heard of the Wing Feather Saga? Yes. Yeah, yeah, a few, yeah. Cool. So I'm I'm reading this this book series with my with my girls, and there's a point in the book where one of the characters is confronted with evidence of a truth that he has only ever sung about and hoped was true. But he had never actually seen evidence of this thing actually being true. He hoped it, but he didn't know if it was true or not. And he commented, I hoped it was true, but it always seemed too good to be true to which the character who gave him this evidence replied, too good not to be true, you mean. That's what we're dealing with here. Our salvation sometimes seems too good to be true, but after we see the evidence, too good to be true becomes too good not to be true. The gospel is so good that it must be true. Our salvation is so good that it must be true. God's love for us is so good that it must be true. Our transfer from death to life is so good that it must be true. Being adopted into God's family is so good that it must be true. Christ is so good that he must be true. Our passage today is a continuation of the thought that Ryan addressed last week. He preached on chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, chapter 2, verse 2, which showed us how living in the light of God manifests the gospel because all that Christ does for us who walk in the light is evident to us and the world. And the continuation of thought is uh, now is how we can have assurance that those things that Christ does for us are really true. If salvation means that Christ is our cleansing, our forgiveness, and our advocate, then how can we be sure that we have those things? 
How can we know that we're saved? This is evidence of living in the light. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your truth, bury it deep inside of us, that we could be conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, do not let your word pass through us and not affect us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all assurance that you love us, that you saved us. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see three pieces of evidence that when all three are true, they prove salvation to the heart of the believer. We're going to read now 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So our first piece of evidence, exhibit A, if you will, is knowing Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. Now, who is the him that we have come to know? Is it the Father or is it Jesus? Feel free to answer. <laughs> it's Jesus. Yes, we have come to know Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate, our propitiation, as we saw last week. And as Hebrews 2.17 says, our merciful and faithful high priest. This is who we've come to know. John here uh, correlates living in the light with knowing Christ. If you want assurance that you're living in the light, look to Christ not to yourself. We sang about that in the song, Not in Me, right? It's not in me, it's in Christ. Living in the light shines a spotlight on the cross and Christ's blood which cleanses us from all sin. We saw that last week in chapter one, verse seven. Assurance comes when we are reminded of the one who has cleansed us. Living in the light exposes our sin in confession. 
and the Father forgives us by virtue of Christ's righteousness, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 9 last week. Assurance comes when we are reminded of the one by whom we are forgiven. And living in the light glories in Christ as our advocate before the Father, as chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say. Assurance comes when we are reminded of the one who intercedes on our behalf when we sin. Jesus said this very thing in John 17, verse 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That was in the high priestly prayer. To know the Father and to know Christ is eternal life. To know Christ is not simply to know things about him, right? It's to know him by experience. I can have exhaustive knowledge of someone, someone famous, let's use Donald Trump for, as an example, right? I can know everything there is to know about Donald Trump. Sorry, yes, Donald J. Trump. I can know his age, I can know his middle initial, I can know where he was born, what his upbringing was like, which schools he went to, what his romantic relationships were like, what kinds of jobs he had, how exactly he conducted business to get his wealth, how much money he has, what he did while he held the office of president, what he's doing now that he's not president anymore. You get the idea. This is not an exhaustive list, right? But I can, I can know some things about Donald Trump. All this knowledge about Donald Trump pales in comparison to actually developing a relationship with him, right? Finding out what kind of person he is by experiencing his likes and his dislikes, his opinions, his responses to different situations. This experiential knowledge is the kind of knowledge we must have of Christ. We cannot simply read our Bibles to gain information about Christ. We must actually encounter him and come to know him by allowing his word to make us more like him. Yes, we come to know him through reading his word, but it cannot stop at acquiring information. It must go all the way to our heart to change us into his likeness. It's important to know Christ because in knowing Christ, he knows us, right? And you don't want to hear the words when the judgment comes, depart from me, I never knew you. We are assured of our salvation when we know Christ. Now, it's a little abstract to speak of knowing someone who you cannot see and touch and speak with in a normal sense, right? So how can we then have assurance that we know Christ? Well, this is now evidence number two. Exhibit B, obeying Christ's commands. This is three through six, verses three through six now. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
You see, keeping Christ's commands is the evidence of knowing him, the evidence of salvation. But what commands are we to obey? The commands that are in view here are the commands of Christ during his earthly ministry. Many of these commands are in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But there are others recorded elsewhere. I'll just give you a, a summary, summary statement of those commands. It's loving God with everything you have and loving, forgiving, and serving one another in a variety of contexts, right? And we'll look at this again a little later. Uh, but these are the very things that the law taught in a rudimentary way that the Spirit now stirs up within us to exercise now that we are freed from the law. We saw this when we looked at the book of Galatians, right? So surely, surely, this is not saying that we must obey the law in order to truly know Christ and claim the cleansing, forgiveness, and ministry of Christ. That's getting it backwards, right? The entire letter to Galatians refutes that idea. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the, according to the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone, right? As we saw last week in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, those who are saved are not yet perfect. We all still disobey, and knowing Christ is the basis for your forgiveness, right? So it can't mean that obedience is the means to knowing Christ. It would be a big mistake to think that you can come to know Christ by checking boxes of obedience. Let's see, I want to know Christ, so I must love God, check. And I must love others, check. And I must forgive others, ooh, sort of check. And I must serve others. Ooh, double check to make up for the forgiveness part. I'm good, right? Wrong. You do not seek to know Christ by first trying to obey. That's legalism at its core. You seek to know Christ by experiencing, experiencing him in his word and by rem, being reminded that he is our cleansing, our forgiveness, and our advocate. And the Holy Spirit inside of you convicts you of how you can become more like Christ. And you follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not as a set of rules or checkboxes, but as the natural result of knowing Christ. Obedience to Christ is the evidence of knowing him, not the means by which we know him. So, what if someone claims to be a Christian, but they completely ignore Christ's commands and live in unrepentant sin? What then? Well, the next verse tells us. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is not to say that believers don't ever disobey. True believers fight to obey all the time and sometimes they fail. John Murray wrote in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, it is true that a believer sins. He may fall into grievous sin and backslide for lengthy periods, 
but it is also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin. He cannot come under the dominion of sin. He cannot be guilty of certain kinds of unfaithfulness. You see, knowing Christ results in obeying his commands and claiming to know Christ while abandoning his commands and living in unrepentant sin proves that claim to be false. I don't want to belabor this point, and we're going to look at it again shortly. So we'll move on for now and look at how John continues his evidence for knowing Christ. Chapter, er, verse 5 says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Here we have a direct correlation between keeping Christ's commands and keeping his word. They're the same thing, Right? And this is a surprising conditional phrase linking the keeping of Christ's word to a perfected love of God within us. I say it's surprising because the argument so far has been a proof of salvation, proof of knowing Christ. And here John says that keeping Christ's commands, keeping his word, is assurance of our perfected love of God. Now, this is another conditional phrase there's a bunch of them in chapter one, if you want to look at those. These are the if-then statements, like if A, then B, right? I won't get into all the technical <laughs> terms of conditional phrases, but um, these phrases are basically used in like logic and geometry, right? To prove the basic principles that we often take for granted. Uh, and the part of the phrase on the if side represents a variable, which might be true, might not. Right? And the part of the phrase on the then side represents the reality in relation to the if side. Here John argues that if A is true, then surely B is also true. If A is not true, then surely B is also not true. Right? If it's true that I keep Christ's commands, then it's also true that my love is perfected. And Jesus said as much, in John 14, 15, as we heard Ryan read earlier, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here John is saying the same thing in reverse. If you keep his commandments, then you know that you love him. But how can John say that our love for God is perfected? What does it mean that our love for God is perfected? The only way that we will genuinely keep Christ's commands is if the Holy Spirit perfects our love for the Father, such that we will desire to obey Christ, proving that we know him, proving that we are truly saved. We can know that we know Christ because we have the Holy Spirit perfecting our love for God, resulting in obedience to his commands. Obedience out of love rather than duty. By this, we may know that we are in him. Now, John has been showing the proof of knowing Christ, but here he says that by this, we may know that we are in him. It's a subtle change. Being in Christ is a sort of shorthand for a phrase that I'm sure we've all heard Pastor Ryan use and talk about at length. Being in Christ is the same as union with Christ. 
But the proof of knowing Christ, the proof of our union with Christ is not just obedience to his commands, it's also looking to Christ as our model for how to live. Verse six says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is another way of saying, you can't just talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk, right? Yet another term that John uses here for knowing Christ and union with Christ is abiding in Christ. If you claim that you have union with Christ, that you are abiding in Christ, then that claim must be accompanied by a life modeled after Christ's life where it's a false claim. This may seem heavy-handed, so let me explain. What is it about Christ's life that John tells us we ought to emulate? John does not explicitly tell us the specifics, but there are some implied parameters, right? In the context of obedience, it's likely that John has Christ's obedience in view. We are not able to be morally perfect like Christ, but we can strive for morality like Christ. We are not commanded to go to the cross and bear the Father's wrath, but we are commanded to take up our cross and follow Christ. We cannot perfectly obey the Father like Christ did, but we can have a heart that desires and obeys and uh, desires to obey and seeks forgiveness when we fail. We can have assurance that we know Christ, that we have union with him, that we abide in him because the Holy Spirit stirs within us a love for Christ such that when we read his commands and character in his word, we desire to obey and emulate as much as we are able. Because it's not about the results of how well we follow Christ. It's about the desire to do so. So, where are we at so far in our list of evidence? Evidence one, we have assurance that we are living in light when we know Christ. And evidence two, we have assurance that we know Christ when we are seeking to obey his commands. Now, evidence number three. Loving Christ and each other. This is verses 7 through 11. It says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says here in verse 7 that this command that he is writing is nothing new. This is a command that has been around for a very long time. In John's original audience, the people that he originally wrote to, would have been very familiar with it. So earlier, we addressed the, the, the question, what commands are we to obey, right? 
we saw that the commands of Christ are to love God with everything you have and to love, forgive, and serve one another. John says that this commandment has been around from the beginning. You see, when God gave Israel the law, he included these commands in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Leviticus 19.18 says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus explained these commands in Matthew 22.37-40, when a lawyer wanted to test him by asking him what, the greatest, uh, what was the greatest commandment. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the explanation. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's the summation of all the law and the prophets. Love God, love others, right? And John also goes on later in this letter, 1 John, to explain this old commandment. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. And he explains just a few verses after that in 3.23 that this commandment is Jesus' commandment. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, uh, in his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. But John says that this is also a new commandment. Verse 8, he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, John, how can this be both old and new at the same time? Is this like a secondhand commandment that he got from a spiritual thrift store or something? Like it's new to you kind of thing? No, he tells us it's new and true in Christ and in us because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You see, this is new covenant language. Right. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, where the law used to be written down on stone tablets, now the law is written on our hearts. And Ezekiel 26, 36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This means that instead of measuring my actions against a list of rules, now I simply love because of how much he loves me. And obedience naturally follows because my changed heart now wants to love. This old commandment to love God and others is new because now I can obey out of love. I can actually obey out of love rather than only trying to obey out of duty and failing all the time. <laughs> That's the glorious difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So this commandment is true in Christ and in you because Christ is in you. 
and the darkness is continually being overtaken by the true light of Christ. This, this is our sanctification. You see, the verb translated passing away is in the present tense. Now, in Greek, that means it's continually happening. This is not a one-time change from total darkness to total light, right? It's a process. And this process is not going to be complete until we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. The darkness of our sin is continually being overtaken by the consciousness of our union with Christ so that the time between when we sin and when we confess gets shorter and shorter. And our love for Christ grows and our love for sin diminishes. This process is learning how to love Christ and love others more and more and learning how to love sin less and less. That's our sanctification. And this learning process gives us assurance of salvation as well because we couldn't possibly sanctify ourselves in our own strength. As Ryan says, we don't do it sola bootstrapa. (laughs) Thank you for those little chuckles. (laughs) Sanctification has to be done in the power of Christ or it won't happen. So when it does happen, we can be sure that the power of Christ is working in us. Now next, John gives us the clear implications of this old, new commandment and how obedience to this commandment is evidence of living in the light and disobedience to this commandment is evidence to the contrary. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is a very tangible way to grasp our assurance of salvation, our assurance of eternal life. And a lack of love is also a very tangible way to see if we are simply deceiving ourselves and not truly saved. We have here evidence of living in the light as well as evidence of living in the darkness. And Jesus said in John 12, 35 to 36, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become children of light. I hear Jesus was referring to his crucifixion, which happened only a few days after he said these words. And the point was to get the people to see their need, to see their need for a Savior and to be reconciled to God. The God of light, through faith in the Savior of light, thus becoming children of light. You see, children of light live in the light, and living in the light results in love, and love illuminates the stumbling blocks of temptation. 
Verses 10 and 11 say, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11 says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. The same thing that Jesus said, right? Doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Living in the light of God's love means that we can readily identify the ways that we may be tempted to sin so we can take steps to avoid stumbling. And we're all tempted to sin in different ways, right? But the heart behind all of sin is a lack of love for God and others. That's the heart behind all of sin. And living in the light of God's love is so different from these temptations that they stand out, right? They stand out as something different, something that doesn't belong. Now, it's absolutely not a sin to be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted, right? But it is sin to obey those temptations. And the best way to fight back against your temptations is to flood them out with love for God and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. The very thing that alerts us to the temptations in the first place is the thing that will fight the temptations off. Now, this love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? Warm, fuzzy feelings will never survive going toe-to-toe with your temptations. Temptations will win every time. This love is a conscious effort to do, to do things that will please God and truly care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This love has real power to do battle against your temptations because this love is empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, we must weaponize our love against our temptations. When we see temptations entering our life, you know what they are specifically for you. I know mine, right? We need to do three things to avoid stumbling. First, pray and ask God to show us ways to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to love him that directly oppose the temptation. This shows a love for God that you would seek his help to please him in avoiding sin. Second, be real with our brothers and sisters and let them know the temptations exist and that they can help by joining in our effort to love. This also shows a love for others that you would seek their help to please God in avoiding sin. And the third thing, actually do it. Actually do the loving things that we and our brothers and sisters in Christ find to fight the temptation. Too often, we get good counsel and refuse to do it. We have to actually do it. So love helps us to see the temptations coming. And when we see temptations coming, first thing to do, love God by asking for his help. Then love others by asking for their help. And then actually do it. Actually love. And don't forget verse 8. We can only fight these temptations with love because the true light of Christ is shining in our hearts and flooding out the darkness. It's Christ's power in us, not our own. 
And when we see Christ gain the victory over our sin, that, sh that should be assurance in itself that we're saved. So we saw first how we can have assurance of salvation by knowing Christ, and then that we can have assurance that we truly know Christ by obeying his commands. And we just saw how obeying Christ's commands means loving him and others. So we can synthesize that down to a sentence. True believers have assurance of their salvation because they know Christ, which results in obedience out of a heart of love. These pieces of evidence individually do not prove salvation. They must be together to give assurance of salvation. Now, I hope that seeing these three pieces of evidence has caused you to go from hoping that your salvation is true to seeing it as too good not to be true. Assurance of salvation does not come from looking to yourself to see how long Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> to see how loving you have been to people. Assurance of salvation does not come from looking to your actions to see how obedient you have been. Assurance of salvation does not come from looking to your knowledge of Scripture or even your knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ specifically. Assurance comes from looking away from yourself, gazing upon the glory of Christ, reveling in your union with him and finding yourself obeying because you love him rather than out of duty or to check a spiritual box. If you want assurance that makes the I hope it's true become too good not to be true, then look to Christ. He is all the evidence you need because he did everything to save you in the first place. It may be that this evidence is not true in your life. If you listen to all this and you're still in doubt, it may be that you're not saved, that you're not yet reconciled to God. I beg you now, be reconciled to God. It doesn't require payment because Christ already paid for it. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is God's son who came to earth and died on the cross for your sins. Trust in him that he loves you, that he paid the price for your sins, and that he rose on the third day and is seated on his throne in heaven, pleading the sufficiency of his blood for your sins even now. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing with your mouth is a public declaration that Jesus is the ruler of your life where sin used to be. Believing in your heart is a faith and trust in Christ as the risen Savior whose death and resurrection are the perfect payment to reconcile us to God. And that faith permeates your whole being so that your thoughts, your actions, your desires are now running toward God rather than away from him. It's so simple, yet so significant. If you have this faith in Christ, proclaim it. Tell someone, 
anyone, everyone, that Jesus bought you with his blood and brought you from death to life so that we can all rejoice and praise God together. This is too good to keep silent. It's too good not to be true. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for for articulating to us how we can know that we are saved, that all we have to do is look to Christ because he's the one that bought us. He's the one that did everything to save us. We didn't do anything except believe. And Father, I pray that you would help us, help us to see the temptations that will come and to fight back against them by loving you and loving others. And Father, I pray that you would help us when, when others come to us for help because they have temptations that they want to fight. Help us to not look down our nose at them. Help us to truly love them and help them. And Father, remind us to do the same. Lord, I, I pray that if there's any here that did not have assurance of their salvation, that they would cry out to you, that they would place their faith in you, their trust in you to be saved in the, in the blood of your Son that was shed on the cross for all of our sins. And Father, I pray that you would sink your word deep into our hearts. Give us assurance of your salvation, assurance that we belong to you, that we're in your family now. Give us this assurance so that we can proclaim, proclaim the gospel, the good news, that we don't have to doubt whether we're saved or not, that we can have assurance of that and from that platform be able to proclaim your word, your truth, your gospel, your good news, that you save sinners. And Father, I pray that when we do sin, Lord, that we would not be cast down, that we would not be rendered useless or debilitated, Lord, that, but that we would truly understand the breadth of your forgiveness and that we would come to you immediately confessing our sin and turning away from it and finding that you and your Son and the Spirit residing inside of us, fighting against that sin is assurance that we belong to you. Lord, please don't let the sin that's in our lives drive a wedge between us and you. And Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.